There has been an association that oh, slow, stiff people are like stuck in their heels. But like, I just don't see that. Like, because again, what have we discussed? Like, what is this thing about the weight room that has a tendency to stiffen some people up? It shoves them forward. They lean forward. They fall more towards the midfoot and the toes. They're not stuck in their heels at all. People who are stuck in their heels, they, they have movement options. You know, they can, they can get back into, into that full squat, demonstrate that triple flexion and things like that. Um, so I think in terms of movement, displaying movement options and being strong in all positions in the weight room, it's often the heels that we should be chasing a little bit more. That was Angus Bradley, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast, starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout, and I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it, and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another episode. Thanks for being here today. When it comes to the gym, the weight room, we can never truly be specific to one sport. A squat, no matter what you do to it, you can make it a single leg squat, a lateral squat, doesn't matter. It's never going to be a Euro step in basketball or a bicycle kick in soccer. There's things in sport that go so far beyond uh, from a complexity and a velocity perspective. They go so far beyond the gym. At the same time, that's, uh, I believe, just because the weight room is general relative to sport. That doesn't mean that we don't study the impact of lifting on human, general human biomechanics, that we don't understand the relationship of a lift and where it fits with the gait cycle. If we can understand lifting biomechanics better, we can understand better how to fill in the gaps how to give athletes what they're not getting in their sport, how to help correct imbalances, as well as how to understand what they might need at different times in the year. When it comes to all things lifting and biomechanics, one of my favorite people to talk to is Angus Bradley. Angus has been a previous guest on this show on episode 249. He's a strength coach and podcast host from Sydney, Australia. He coaches out of Sydney CBD and co-hosts the High Performance Podcast with his brother Oscar. Angus is one of the most brilliant and practical individuals I know in the world of strength training biomechanics, and then connecting it to human movement and giving practical implications. On the show today, Angus will talk about all elements of squatting, specifically with where one's center of mass is positioned relative to their feet because of uh, the constraints that we're putting on the athlete in terms of where is the bar and how are we setting it up. He'll talk about heels versus athletes who get into their toes too quickly. Angus will also talk about ideas of delayed knee extension. How do we get more out of that in squatting? And Angus has done a little bit of sprint work recently, and he'll also share his thoughts on delayed knee extension in sprinting. He'll be talking about some foot dynamics and a whole lot more transferable elements of the gym 
into athletic performance and how we can just make those connections between what we're doing in the weight room and those human level gate-based adaptations. This was a great talk and I always love talking to Angus. He's such a wealth of knowledge and I know you guys will enjoy this show. My apologies that I was quite congested for the recording of this show. It certainly makes for an interesting change of tone. Let's get on to it. Episode 289 with Angus Bradley. Angus, welcome back to the show, man. It's great to have you here again. You've been making some awesome posts lately and I'm excited to pick your brain once again. So thanks for being back on. Oh, thanks, Joel. It's an absolute pleasure to be back and yeah, excited to be here. So the first question I have, and this this post made me smile. I, I thought it was funny and it reminds me of probably many times I've I've learned some sort of corrective or something that elicits a you test an athlete and they test bad, whatever that is, and then you do the intervention and they test good or test well. And uh, so you had a post about picking um, what could be the wrong intervention, but it worked anyways because clients just needed the variability. Uh, could you go into a little more detail on that post, like specific examples of things in coaching that where you see a beneficial adaptation happening, but even if it's not the ideal intervention. Um, yeah, I think this is mostly like a PRI joke because like so many of those drills, there is so much nuance to, um, there's so many levers they're trying to pull simultaneously by interacting with so many different systems at once. And, you know, so many times I've been doing just a PRI drill or something that I've sort of looked at and thought, oh, that could be really useful for one of my athletes. Like that's just something that I bet they can't do or they suck at. Um, and you sort of give it to them and then, you know, six months later, I've realized like, you know, they're completely botching the inhale or something. And I think it just goes to show you how much athletes are often just yearning for something different. Um, it's so easy, you know, especially for competitive athletes, for training to start to feel stale and monotonous and for patterns to develop both good and bad. And I think just some exposure to, you know, what do athletes need when they're feeling bad? But they definitely need something that they're not doing. I think that can be really beneficial. Um, so often it's just that you did something different or tried to push them in a new direction or a direction that they haven't been in a while. And I just think that that can be incredibly refreshing for athletes, no matter what it is. Um, and then to that point as well, I think with this whole compression expansion thing I'm into, you know, there's a million or infinite different interventions, but at the end of the day, there's really just two movements the way I see it. So where they're just trying to expand someone or compress them or externally or internally rotate them or give them a bit more of one or the other. So you just try one and then you try the other. And I think like the biggest thing I always go to, if you're just looking for like, you know, your athlete needs something and you don't know whether it's IR or ER, well, you can grab both of those things if you just start pulling your athlete back, especially if you if you feel like some of the problems that the athlete is experiencing might be attributed in particular to some of your weight room practices. Maybe they're just getting a bit too banged up from a bunch of like the heavy lifting or something like that. And that just has a tendency to shove people forward when they're under load. And I'm not sure if you've seen, I'm always sort of posting that map of the foot, sort of the way I explain gait as you traverse across the foot. We've got ER at the heel, IR at the midfoot, and then like a propulsive concentric ER at the big toe. So often people who've been lifting a lot of weights when they're experiencing a lot of stiffness or they don't have a lot of movement options, they'll just be all the way shoved forward into toe off. So all they have is this like really tight, propulsive, concentric, weird ER with no real movement options. You pull them back onto the midfoot and then there'll be a more internally rotated orientation. So now you have the ability to go from sort of this mid stance 
to this late stance. So you have some more transitions and a few more options back. And then you can keep pulling them back if you feel it's necessary all the way back and give them some more ER on the other side of that. And that's that real yielding sort of early stance um, if you want to look at it from a gait perspective. So you're saying that, um, well, I was going to ask you about the, the pull, uh, pulling back is basically doing things where people have retracting the rib cage. They are more heels oriented and uh, like a zercher, like a zercher um, front foot elevated split squat, for example. Absolutely. Anything where you shove load out in front, they're usually going to respond to that, hopefully by shifting their weight back. If you're working with a good athlete, they'll shift their weight back. If you're working with Gen Pop, they might fall on their face. <laughs> yeah. What, yeah. What do you do? Yeah. How do you... Um, yeah, what are some ways of going about that then? Like at people who are working with an athlete or good athletes versus people who are a little bit less athletic. Um, it's you, funny. I think it's just that, about so. maximizing constraints and external stability, but also respecting the fact that like, you know, I think we're, we're all heard this thing, constraints over cues, you know, try to, instead of telling them what you want them to do, try to manipulate the environment to get them to coax them into performing or moving the way you want them to perform. But a sign of a good athlete to me is like they will respond to their environment. So I think the clearest example would be the way you elevate like someone's heels and a good athlete will understand that and just like be able to drop straight down into a squat. Whereas sometimes you'll have someone doing a really hingy squat and you'll elevate their heels and they're just, they don't really understand how to respond to their environment as well as it's changing around them. And they'll just keep trying the same fucking strategy. Um, so that's when I'll push them back against a wall or something like that and just give them some more references and to give them a better understanding of where they are in space. So they're not just like guesstimating because that's the thing, like people with sedentary lives, like I think of them with their movement options as like, they're just this person standing in a big dark room with a torch. And like, as you expose them to more different movements and things like that, they just have a much better, richer proprioceptive understanding. Like they've illuminated more of the room, so to speak, uh, for referencing later. Got it. So would that fit in with, because I was going to ask you about the like corrective versus uh, GPP or if an athlete or an individual like is too far forward and they don't have very good rotation. And so, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times the mentality is, Oh, you don't rotate. Well, let's, here's a bunch of corrective stuff to do before the session, which is really a, a vibe cramp in many ways, especially if it's a group of athletes or athletes. Mm -hmm. And so are you saying that, or my thought would be if an athlete can get on a wedge or slant board and do the squat well and get back and feel their heels and then I might not need like that's more of the approach to fix you know the issue that because well, I, I feel like a lot of this breathing and walking stuff and even when you're integrating it with strength training people just cannot take off the rehab goggles and things like that whereas like if you say I've got an athlete stuck in toe off and, and this is me as a trainer as well I don't really work with injured people I work with people like obviously on that transition um, out of rehab into performance and like, you know, sometimes blending a bit of those together. But what I'm trying to do is like, generally speaking, I want athletes to be able to show me certain things. And so many times from a general physical preparation sense, it just falls into pulling them back so they have more movement options to explore so they can be a bit more general about their physical preparation. Because when you lose movement options, all of a sudden your training gets pretty narrow and it's not very general in nature because you don't have many different options to explore so like and that's like i said whenever i'm trying to simplify things because often athletes will be missing a bunch of different things when you test them on the table they'll be missing ir er from various parts of the body but you can just simplify it by just looking at where they are in the sagittal plane and thinking about that map of the foot 
sort of, you know, where your center of mass is in relation to your base of support. If the center of mass is over the toes, you're going to be in that propulsive ER. If your center of mass is over the midfoot, you're going to be in that nice compressive IR, that mid stance. And if you get them, get them further back behind their base of support, then they'll be in that early stance and they'll have more access to that nice yielding ER. Um, so that's sort of the way I look at it. It's like, and that's how I fit it into a performance model. I, I think, you know, a high performing athlete in like, you know, let's use like a field sports context, like a pretty variable athlete. I should reasonably be able to expect to be able to see all of those things. Can they demonstrate some form of early stance, mid stance and late stance qualities in the weight room? And then like, how much can I, can they demonstrate that under load? Or as soon as I load them, do they lose all of their viable options and do they just get shoved into Tov instantly? And I think that's the other thing as well, like where this gets conflated with like a rehab model is so many times for people to express these different orientations and shape, we just have to take a bit of weight off them because they're just only strong in toe-off. So they're just babies when it comes to strengthening mid-stance or strengthening early stance, particularly from a weight room perspective. Like obviously in, in sports where people are running around, they get this natural exposure to early, mid and late stance. But in terms of the weight room, especially if you are chasing strength gains hard, it's just so easy to just toe off everything. And like when, when I look at people who don't sort of have this lens of gait, I'm not saying you need to look at things through the lens of gait, but to me, it's just such a surefire way to see that you're ticking all these boxes. Because I look at some of these people who make a joke, like, oh, gait's silly. You know, we're just smashing weights. Like, why can't we just smash weights? And I look at their program through the gate lens and it's like, well, why are you towing off everything? Why? And like, toe off's not bad, but I don't want that to be the only thing that you're doing in the weight room. Can you show me, even if you have to strip back a bit of load, some early and mid stance? Um, and I think a lot of people can't and a lot of people don't even understand what that is until they sort of go through this gate lens. And like I said, it just, it just seems very appropriate when you're trying to work with people who are looking to get something from the weight room, you know, outside of the four walls of the gym. Yeah. So I went on a bit uh, of a rant there. That was, that was good. Um, yes. I was going to say, especially if I'm a team. So like, that's the thing. It's not corrective just because you're deloading it. It's like, it's, it's performance training. I'm removing some loads so you can show me a shape that you suck at. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it, and, and generally speaking, the early stance is the one to go first. And like that, that fits in with the nature of how we talk about early stance and all those sort of yielding qualities, right? Yeah, yeah. It makes sense too. I was just, the more I learn about this stuff when I watch um, a complex athletic movement, like, I mean, you can do a lot of late stance propulsive stuff and have it fit into just sprinting in a straight line fairly well, um, especially if that's your strategy in sprinting. But it strikes me that like you watch someone do uh, like a t- running two-legged takeoff, especially in like basketball, and maybe they're going to spin in the air. You can't do that very well if you don't have access to the early and the mid. It's just, and you can, it's cool because you can see it happening. I, I know you posted a picture of an athlete doing like a penultimate step into a jump and you just see like this long leg. I talked with Alex F for a little bit about this. You can see this long leg, heels coming down first, thorax has to be retracted. And I do find it funny because so often we'll just coach the skills and say, oh, well, you're, you need to step farther on that penultimate step or something. And, but without actually yes, addressing but then integrating that into the weight room. Yeah. How, how can we prepare, better prepare ourselves for some of those positions? Because I, I agree, like as soon as people are loaded up, like they just never really make a shape in the weight room that looks like a penultimate step. And I also, I also think like, you know, the weight room isn't necessarily the best place 
to, to work on your penultimate step because it is a skill, I think, assuming that shape at speed in a complex environment. But just having a, a bit of a way to expose yourself to that position under load and see how long, see how much load you can apply to someone, let's say in a split squat, where they can actually keep their center of mass behind their base of support and they can maintain those more yielding orientations before they get pushed forward into mid-stance before you load them up even more. And then again, they can't even show you mid-stance, which is where we get all that beautiful delayed knee extension. And when we actually center ourselves properly over that single base of support. And that's sort of another thing that governs the load in a split squat as well um, with the mid-stance, like another constraint. At a certain point, you're trying to get them to demonstrate mid-stance in a split squat. But if you load them up too much, they won't actually center themselves on that stance leg. They'll go back to sort of like right between their two bases of support and they'll start using that back leg and they'll start mm-hmm. instantly extending the knee as soon as they have to come out of the hole or yeah. fall forward. It's, that goes back to what we talked about last time where it's like when you lift more weight, how, what was the strategy to lift more weight? If my split squat went up from 200 to 225, I may have not actually gotten stronger. Like I may have just found a way to cheat it and get into that forward propulsion better <laughs> versus. Yeah, they'll actually. just lean forward more or something like that, which again, like it's not that that's a horrible movement pattern, but it's, it's something else. It's, it's changed all of a sudden. Yeah, if the goal was to expose them to more of that, yeah. that rear stance. And going back to as well, like I think you can incorporate some of those uh, infrasternal angle concepts as well when you're trying to work out like, you know, if I'm really trying to facilitate performance in this individual, how far do I need to pull them back so that they can play to their strength, so to speak? Someone who is a big compressed wide ISA, they, they probably can't take advantage of a big penultimate step anyway. So like from a performance perspective, I probably only need to pull them back to mid stance and give them enough options to demonstrate, you know, some nice clean mid stance and some nice toe off. Like they don't need to get that far back because they're not really going to be able to use it. It might be nice from like a feel good, you know, if they, mm-hmm. if they just need a few more movement options for like whatever task they want to do, maybe they do need to get back to early stance. But again, a lot of them, it's just like, just get them back a bit. But then other guys will really benefit from like, you know, being able to get all the way back. Yeah. I remember I, um, I had the opportunity, uh, Jake Tura stopped by. Uh, the gym I work at and uh, we did a little uh, jump training type stuff and lifting and it's it's just funny because watching just seeing his body structure and the differences with how him and I jump I just think to myself could you someone who's a wide infrastructural angle like this how much back could he ever get you know what I'm saying like you you would be at some point you're just kind of it's a fool's errand at some point like like you said maybe we just maybe mid stance is the idea yeah, just double down on his strengths and like give him enough options you know and i think as well like people got it's so weird because like you see so many guys wide isls like i think it's willie rattel jake tura basically all jake tura's mates like they're all wired isa guys who can jump and dunk and, and things like that like all those things that people say wired isas can't do they just sort of accept a different strategy i think that's the big lesson from the the isa sort of thing it's not to like throw people in these boxes is just to be open that in each domain there's going to be two different strategies and there's going to be one that probably all the best guys use like let's face it like all the best jumpers i'd say there's probably a pattern that they do have that more narrow isa and they probably do have that longer penultimate but that doesn't mean that if you're a wide isa trying to copy what those absolute best guys do is going to get you to your best and i think that's what's 
clarifying for people when they incorporate some of these ISA concepts. It allows them to sort of trust their own instincts a little bit better and be like, ah, so like that strategy that I do that is a little bit different, like maybe there is something to that. It's like there must be at least two ways to do it. There's usually more. Mm -hmm. Uh, So theoretically at least or or practically, (laughs) um, if I had um, the bandwidth of possible movements for a narrow ISA that I use in the gym may be more than um, a wide. Would that be like you said, like more a wide might be more mid mid propulsive and late, but a narrow could easily do all those things or uh, no. So that's the thing, like the the stereotypical downside of the narrow ISA is that they're very good at occupying either side of mid stance. Um, So it's getting them to spend more time in mid stance is the challenge. Okay, gotcha. Um, so what would some things for a narrow then, if that's that's their thing that they need to work on, what are some, um, I mean, I, I kind of, I would think um, like single leg lifts with the toes off the ground. What are some interventions that really dial in on, on mid-stance for that population? Because, um, and, and that's it, you can get a wide ISA who sucks at mid-stance as well because they might not be able to center themselves on, on a single leg. So you can have narrows and wides that both need to work on uh, mid-stance and they're all going to have issues with certain aspects of mid-stance individually. But what everyone needs when they suck at anything basically is just way more external stability or know how to regress it all the way back down to the floor if need be. Some people don't need to go all the way back to the floor, but like understanding how to navigate your way from the squat rack or the power rack all the way back to the floor with the balloon in your mouth and every step in between. And, and, and running up and down and back about where it's appropriate. Like, cause I think a lot of people, they get stuck when they introduce a lot of this, maybe low, low corrective stuff is they stay on the floor, but then it's like, no, no, it's like the floor is just to give you like a taste of what you're looking for in the more complex movement later or to start. So you can actually be competent so you can train this quality and then we'll keep progressing it sort of. Um, but yeah, I, generally speaking, cause like I said, it's the, and, and the other thing is, Usually people just need external stability to demonstrate these early mid-stance concepts because they refuse to regress the load because they don't want to seem huh. like horses or whatever, but <laughs> you can choose either of those two options. And like, that's where I love Hatfield squats, right? Like that, yeah. you can load them up so much, but you just shove your arms out in front of you to keep the rib cage back. So um, I, I think Hatfield squats for bringing out all sorts of um, stance qualities can be really, really useful. Oh, for sure. Uh- you know, it's funny. I didn't know any of this stuff um, like three years ago and I'd use Hatfield squats with, with swimmers. And I mean, I knew enough to, when I saw this to tell them not to do it, but Nick, speaking of too much weight, I would see people who would, would put a ton of weight on the bar and then they'd have their hands on the, so a Hatfield squat, just for people who aren't familiar, it's just a squat where you have your hands on like, I guess, bars in front of you. So you got extra stability as you squat. And I would have athletes who we're already in extension pretty significantly. So already a hyperextended kind of spinal situation. And they would just like use their arms to help their spine extend more so that they could use their back to like lift the weight, which I found, I would, you know, of course that didn't look right. So I would tell them. And, and that's it. It's like you can, I like getting people to use the arms a lot in the hat field, but it's like use them to propel yourself up, but also to stay back and try to, you know, almost hamstring curl yourself out of the hole to delay knee extension obviously it's not a hamstring exercise but sort of approaching it like that i think can just be phenomenal yeah uh, could you explain that actually angus a little bit I, I know you've you've posted about that with i think in the sense of a goblet squat could you go more into that hamstring curl out of the hole to 
delay knee extension in a squat more? Yeah, well, the whole d- being able to delay knee extension, it's just like, can you stop falling forward? Because as soon as the center of mass passes in front of the base of support, you're in toe off, mm. which you're going to just extend your knees and begin that transition either off the ground or, or to your other leg. So whether it's in a goblet squat or a Hatfield squat, so bilateral or more of an asymmetrical unilateral stance, if you can keep the center of mass back and press through your midfoot, you will delay knee extension. But people fall forward, and that's what transitions them a little bit too early into that later phase of gait, and they're not getting the most out of their hip musculature or their hip extensors. And it's just like it's just a big knee extension. I think, and I think the way to conceptualize it as well is because we've been like this whole triple extension thing. It's just such a pushing sort of motion. But what you notice when you go hips then knees, or you delay knee extension, is glutes pull you forward. They don't push you forward. The push is the knee extension. And you get great propulsive knee extension when you've got great that pull from the glutes beforehand to set it up. Um, but yeah, that, that's the thing. It's like getting down in either the split squat or the goblet squat and then keeping the shin angle forward and using your glutes to pull the hips forward and keeping the rib cage back. Blood work is a common analysis in the regime of elite athletes. It quantifies many dimensions and metrics of an athlete's physiology and helps one to see windows of potential performance improvement. Today's episode is also sponsored by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. The company uses a blood test and patented algorithm to analyze your body's physiological markers, providing you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you. Inside Tracker then offers science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. In using Inside Tracker myself, it was truly fascinating to see the many metrics of my own physiology, looking at things like hormone levels, inflammation, blood oxygen-related metrics, and much more. If you are interested in an Inside Tracker analysis, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. And to get that discount, head to insidetracker.com slash justflysports. Got it. So basically, if people are squatting a lot where they're just, and, and you said, I, I earlier in this show and I instantly think to all these cases I've seen and I've seen it in myself too where athletes who like it's always a quest for heavier weight so you're just going to go into that late stance propulsion as early as you can to get that extra power in the squat yeah Um, because that's a big thing I think like rhythm and timing is something that gets lost on a lot of strength coaches and it's like if we can get athletes to delay things under load that's how we start playing with those more athletic concepts of rhythm and timing. Like, can you delay things? Mm-hmm. Can you show me some rhythm? Or do you just do everything at once? You just recruit everything at once. That's all you do. You're just a big squeezer. <laughs> or can you know, can you develop some rhythm and some timing? Because there's sequencing of things that can be like really, really beneficial for athletes. Yeah, for sure. And so with the um like so with people who do, do get in their toes too fast, you said that would link to potentially like that pattern if I'm trying to get people to let's just say delay their knee extension and acceleration and someone has a problem with that, then I would fit. I would basically, I could um, complement that in the weight room with squatting where it was a little bit more mid stance, like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If you are having an athlete who is extending their knees, heaps early on the track or like doing the thing, whatever you need to do and extending their knees too early. If you're shoving them forward in the weight room and trying to aggressively pursue strength gains in that period, I think you're sending the athlete really mixed messages with your protocol, whereas there's a bit more harmony 
across the sports training and the strength training if you're like all right look i know we're not going to hit a big squat pb right now because you've actually got technical issues in your sport so i'm just going to goblet squat you which actually allows you to keep the thorax upright and to get from toe off that's that standing position in the squat get down to parallel which is your mid stance and then get your ass on your ankles and your knees back towards your chest plantar flex a little bit down the bottom again keeping the head over the pelvis the whole time now you're back in your heels now you're in early stance and then again you shin angle change out of the hole come up to parallel that's the mid stance that's all that beautiful delayed knee extension and then you come up into toe off yeah i think goblet squats are i'm very high on goblet squats yeah like i said because it is just a simple stable place for an athlete to show you and like it's not early, mid, and late stance, but it is. Mm. Like it's a squat. Some people would say that that's not gate, but like I sort of look at like everything's gate to me. Yeah, um, I got a couple of follow ups on the the squatting. So the first one, uh, just just because this, <laughs> the last two years of talking to people about this has really um, has really changed the way I think about it. Is I if you would say, you know, how should you squat? And this is me three years ago or four years ago. A lot of it's going to be, well, just like floating heels, toe off, max propulsion. We want to link to the foot, right? And so where is the place for that? Um, as you see it, like how do you, you see floating heels being beneficial? And then how would you go about applying that if you were going to use that with somebody? My, me personally, I think people are already doing floating heel exercises all the time without realizing it. Um, so it's not that they're bad because obviously people get, get something out of their strength training plans. Currently, they probably feel like they do. Um, and I think it's getting into the heels. And one of the things that can make it a lot easier to get into heels is to float the toes. I think a lot of people can't even get into their midfoot unless you sort of just get them out of their toes. Cause again, their toes is often all they've ever felt and all they know, like people just move as if they have hooves almost. Um, and, and I think there has been an association that oh, slow, stiff people are like stuck in their heels. But like, I just don't see that. Like, cause again, what have we discussed? Like, what is this thing about the weight room that has a tendency to stiffen some people up? It shoves them forward. They lean forward. They fall more towards the midfoot and the toes. They're not stuck in their heels at all. People who are stuck in their heels, they, they have movement options. You know, they can, they can get back in, into, into that full squat, demonstrate that triple flexion and things like that. Um, so I think in terms of movement, displaying movement options and being strong in all positions in the weight room, it's often the heels that we should be chasing a little bit more. But then, of course, like by all means, do some floating heel stuff when you want to potentiate someone or when you do want to work on those more propulsive qualities. But again, I think a lot of people just accidentally are always training like super propulsive orientations in the weight room. And it's more the yielding things that people should spend a little bit more time exploring. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And yeah, like you said, you're on your toes all the time. And that's definitely a I would say if I look at all the athletes I work with and and remember many from years past, generally people have a lot harder time, especially if they have a history of weightlifting. They've been doing it for a while and it's a very one rep max driven program. Inevitably. Yeah, if you can't flex your spine, there's no way you're getting down into that squat. You have to be able to shift everything back and like, you know, get a bit of a thoracic curve going and yeah. Yeah. I feel like for the for what I've taken that with the floating heel is I feel like Generally, if you can do an isometric lunge hold or any variation of that and just lift the heel up like a centimeter, you know, and that's, that gives you quite a bit of calf training. And, and that's it. Like, I like what the floating heel does 
in terms of like co-contractions around the knee. It's just what it does for a lot of people at the thorax that I think can be problematic when it's overused or not. The exercise isn't managed well. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I had another question with squat. Because a lot of people, like when you, when you float that heel, like, I think a lot of people just aren't stable. So they just like compress the hell out of the, their backside, I think sort of creates stability which you get is fine it's just going to limit movement options yeah for sure it's interesting the other day i was doing squats and most of my if not all my squatting these days is on a slant board and safety bar and it it is funny because if you really stick to heels on the way down and keeping things back you you're the weight you can lift is much much less than that just yeah. you know going i mean i don't know how many pounds it might be like i mean depend could be like 20% I think for a good amount of people maybe more and so it's like what an ego hit to have to to do that it's um I- yeah but and it just comes down to like what are you doing the exercise for and I think if you just want to lift a massive weight do a deadlift when I do a squat my the whole idea of a squat for me is like yeah I'm trying to make this athlete stronger but I just want to explore some yielding qualities and there's only so much load you can throw on someone before, like I said, early stance, you just, you can't tolerate too much load before they're shoved too far forward. Yeah, that makes sense. So what do you think about like a hex bar deadlift for that purpose? Um, I, obviously some things change, right? Like the, the supination of the arms and the, where the weight is with your center of mass and things like that. Yeah, I love that. It's, that is basically like my big deadlift because the thing about the, like, yeah, they're more pronated um, with a straight bar deadlift. But then it's impossible to delay knee extension. Obviously, you have to extend your knees early. So, like, just from a general athleticism perspective, I love the trap bar for, like, my primary big old deadlift and, like, my super heavy lift. Because I think it's just a little bit that neutral grip just gives people a few more degrees of freedom and not having that bar against the shins is really, really helpful for, again, like, if you want to explore delayed knee extension. Got it. And then um, the I, yeah, I like I, that's where I've gone to definitely more so, especially in the last several years is, a lot of the single leg stuff and slant board type squatting for just general ability. But then if you want to go heavy uh, hex bar or even like the WEC uh, 45 deadlift where your feet are close together and the knees are out and it's like... Oh, the frog stance. Yeah, the frog stance. I mean, that's like pretty serious delayed knee extension by nature right there. Wouldn't that be? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like you see, once you start looking for it, like you see delayed knee extension in a heap of places, like even weightlifters... Olympic weightlifters, they delay knee extension. That's that whole second pull. Like, and that's what I mean when it's like gate is gate or like propulsion is propulsion. It's just these patterns, like pattern one, pattern two, flexion, abduction, external rotation, adduct, extension, abduction, internal rotation. Like all human movement generally is expressed like that. Yeah. Um, so you were saying, um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave this with the squat. This will be my last squat question. Then I'll go into the next kind of topic here. But um, you were talking about um, getting back in the squat, improving rotation for athletes who have been taught to like shove their knees out for their whole life. <laughs> and how do you help athletes to just let their legs be, if that makes, you know what I'm saying? Like to get that full range. Do you have any tips or thoughts there? Cause I think about that sometimes, even with myself. It can be really hard because it depends how that messaging has come to the athlete as well. Like my personal experience, I, I not only adopted the knees out cue for bloody everything, um, not only because I was told it was, you know, the key to performance, but also the key to not destroying my knees or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I think if an athlete just thinks that, oh, this is a good movement strategy, 
just shove my knees out because that's apparently what you do whenever you're lifting weights. Um, I think that's easy to correct. You just be like, hey, that was a dumb rule. You don't have to worry about that. Just let your knees move. Uh, but then, like, for me personally, like, my body is just, like, I know in my um, prefrontal cortex that letting your knees come in is fine, but my body, like, my <laughs> lizard brain is like, no, 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 no. We know, like, we got told for so long that that's yep. where the injuries are. So I think you have to think of ways to make uh, people feel safe. And, again, for a lot of people exploring the inside edge of their foot, and all these other different movement strategies we're describing, again, it's going to look like corrective exercise when you first get into it. You're going to go from a big low bar back squat, maybe over 500 pounds, to hold, you know, maybe a 30 kilo kettlebell out in front of you, trying to like just sense the inside edge of your foot as you come down to the ground. Maybe you put a light band around your knees or squeeze something between your knees just to give yourself some things to touch. Again, more grounding, more safety, maybe external stability, put your hands on a bar in front of you or something like that. Mm. Um, yeah, I think just give it time and just understand that might, there might be a few layers of um, <laughs> aversion to letting the knees come in initially. Yeah, yeah. And just background. And helping people understand, because I think we've all seen that sort of ugly valgus and like whatever it might happen on the sporting field, but it's probably not ideal in a squat to have like the knees, you know, swinging in like barn doors, so to speak. But just telling athletes like specifically what is like, you know, textbook knees and how do we get like real clean pronation? Um, Because not that you need to pronate perfectly, but just telling people like what you are chasing, like having an intent with the knees in and being able to tell them specifically initially how much knees in to go for, things like that can be very helpful rather than just being like maximum knees out. Mm. And now it's like, oh, now it's about maximum knees in. <laughs> it's like, let's, you know, uh, let's be a bit careful with what we're saying. Yeah. Yeah. In the Q&A podcast I just put together, I and something I've learned um, when I, in my time in swimming is like the danger of just coaching positions or ex- especially extreme positions, like, like you said, maximal knees out. And I think a lot about how do I uncoach all these things that got coached into me over the years that probably reduced my ability to just move and flow, especially like in a squat, like going from that. Cause I remember how I squatted when I was in high school was like the knees came in quite a bit, although it was, I, I'm pretty sure it was just knees in on the balls of the feet on the toes like full propulsion and to be honest i mean that at the time just trying to run faster and jump higher that actually was pretty helpful so um but Mm -hmm. i'm always thinking about like how do i let my body do what it wants to do and how do i like just notice what my legs and my femurs want to do and just kind of go with that and i that's i've that's been my i don't we want to say conundrum but just trying to figure out how to uncoach things out of myself that have been in there in the past yeah i think the first thing is just in a squatting sense if we were trying to just get the famous to just be famous and just go back to doing their thing ering and iring throughout the squat when they should not us deliberately trying to um manage that ourselves because it's almost impossible like the cns would just do a better job if we just let it do it so get yourself out of your toes so that might involve putting the weight further forward just so you can get your rib cage back a little bit further Um, and then you just want to sense all three corners of your foot. So you heel and then either corner of the ball of your foot. And if you can sense those parts of your foot the whole time, your femurs and knees will behave really well. If you get some sort of gross valgus or knees in sort of thing, I guarantee you're not pushing through the outside edge of your foot as well as you could be. And same as if your knees, if they're just shoved out to the side and you get really stuck through the middle of the squat, then I guarantee you're not pushing through that inside edge of your foot very effectively. So just learning to use the whole foot. 
Like there's a, there's a reason we have the whole foot and not just a little hoof. <laughs> yeah. So just spending time with more like mid and back pressure and feeling and noticing how does that change my femur? Yeah. Cause I think once you draw some attention to it, the athlete will be like, Oh, I am very on one edge of my foot or I am very forward. They're usually the two things that I find. Cool. Cool. Um, actually I do have one more squat question. Cause I was like, it was in my head. I'm like, all right, I'll ask it. Um, back, uh, probably four years ago, a coach, uh, Sheldon Dunlap was on the show and talked about how the direction he had taken triphasic training and he replaced the isometric phase with an oscillatory phase where you'd be in the mid, probably about mid stance level of a squat or so, and you just oscillate up and down. And it strikes me that any sort of oscillating squat for the most part by nature, or maybe even like a one and a quarter type squat, you know, where there's not necessarily oscillating, but just up down in the mid range. That's I think that could be really cool. I would instinctively, I've never really thought of doing that, but instinctively I would want to do like get all the way down into that real ass to grass position with the knees back towards the chest and just shin angle change up to parallel and then back down yielding action, shin angle change out of the hole and then back down, shin angle change and just sort of cycle through that. I think that could be really cool. And like you're getting a lot of supination, pronation, you get a lot of IR, ER, and a lot of just, because it is at the end of the day, it's like, can you assume the postures, but then also how do you transition between them? Um, Yeah, that'd be heaps cool. Yeah. Yeah. I know that the athletes that Sheldon was working with, they're like long jumpers, their stride lengths improved a lot. And I was just thinking, hmm, maybe, yes, there is the reflexive portion of that, which I guess that, you know, I'm I'm sure that is helpful, no doubt. Like there's that, but I couldn't help but think too, in thinking about that, that maybe better access to mid or early stance, you know, that could also help to lengthen out um, gait or something with the way the body was moving in the air. Um, well, not- and then you've got those, like, what are they, the Romanian rhythm squats that people were pretty high on a couple of years ago. Like, you could throw that in, in the phase after to, you know, shove people a little bit further forward, later phase of stance, yeah. extend the knees early. What do you think about... Sorry, that would be early. Uh, <laughs> you can extend the knees eventually. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com. SimplyFaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource, not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In simplyfaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines, such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units such as the 1080 sprint, force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. What do you think about, um, now that I'm on my oscillating train, um, one of the movements I really have liked in the past and, and still use is like an oscillating split squat. And I got this out of the, like the DB Hammer, whoever wrote that, um, the, like the greatest <laughs> sports book, whatever it's called. And back, back when that was a big thing. And it was uh, basically you're, you're in a rear foot elevated so i guess that's a more propulsive position but you'll be where the thigh is parallel to the ground and you according to the book you you maximally contract the muscles in that front leg and then you relax it as hard as you can just bounce out and 
I guess that's more, I mean, that's a little more, it depends on the angle of your shin, I, I you know, but I, I see that as almost. You could still get a lot of mid. It wouldn't have to be like that late in stance, but it's definitely going to be like late at two phases for sure. Got it. Yeah. I always felt like that was a really beneficial movement for loosening. Just maybe it is more. That's it again. Like, like even if you can just water down, like say you look back through your program with this new gate lens, you're like, oh my God. It's all toe off. Even just throwing in a bit of early to late, uh, sorry, mid to late can be very helpful for people. Yeah. Like I, just having some sort of transitions in there. I guess, yeah, that's a mid to late stance. Yeah, that rear foot elevated, if it's a bounce out, that it really is kind of a mid to late stance, which that's yeah. sprinting. Like that's sprinting. That's the right thing. There. Even though the rear foot elevation can shove people forward, it does often make people center better over that stance leg, provided they have the strength. So, that's where it can be really helpful sometimes to explore some of those mid-stance qualities, like get some on one leg better. Because that to me, if you want to talk about like stereotypical mid-stance in a locomotion sense, like that is a key characteristic for when I'm chasing mid-stance locomotion concepts in the weight room. Like, are they actually on one leg? Hmm. Um, with mid-stance too. So I believe you'd posted something about this and I found it interesting because I would definitely put myself in this category to a degree is people who are like elast- super springy, elastic, their foot is almost like, it, not permanently because it has to flatten a little bit, but their foot is very much like a bridge. Like it's just this, this springy bridge and they just tend to bounce their way through different mo- uh, movements and motions. Um, what is mid-stance like? I mean, do it, it, will there be situations where I really need to get that athlete to, to get into mid stance better. I hope, I hope you know what I'm asking. Like, what do you, basically what I'm asking is how do you, yeah, so an athlete like I that think in, a, in a practical sense, if you think about, let's say like a narrow, uh, ISA, and again, we're just playing with stereotypes here because it <laughs> makes the conversations easier in the game of basketball and narrow ISA, someone who needs these big wind up phases, um, for their big explosive or powerful movements. Well, due to the constraints of a game where there's defensive players, sometimes you don't actually have space. So that's where a wide ISA, if you could just transfer, transform yourself into a wide ISA, someone who can use a short penultimate step or someone who can just stand under the rim and dunk, like that would be helpful. So that's where, you know, you're not necessarily helping an athlete develop their strengths if you've got a narrow ISA and you're just like drawing all these mid-stance qualities out of them in the weight room. But maybe you're just making them a more well-rounded play because it's like, well, mate, you're not always going to have that much space. Like you need to be able to do something when you don't have space. Or are you just going to be that guy who just, you need space to do work? So I think um, that that's where, you know, for a narrow ISA, they could benefit. And obviously everyone benefits from just a bit more general preparation. But like I said, when it comes to, uh, I think you do want to allow athletes to play to their strengths majority of the time and understanding that the real value then for the narrow ISA in the weight room will be like doing less of that traditional weight training and like trying to explore some of those more yielding concepts in the weight room, like get them focusing on their deep squats where they bounce out of the hole and things like that and get their center of mass all the way back. And, you know, don't chase the extra load when you notice them falling forward and things like that. Cause again, they won't, they, you won't shove them from early to mid you shove them from early all the way to late, straight away. That's usually what happens with the narrows. Like they don't spend much time in zone two. Yeah, 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 that zone That two. is their challenge. Yeah, it strikes me that that would be probably a lot more beneficial for, I mean, track and field is a small uh, population relative to all the team sports where you need more variability. So it, it strikes me that that would be probably even more beneficial for a team sport athlete. They just need a few more movement options versus like 
a high jumper in track. Like they're just a bouncing stick, you know? <laughs> so maybe yeah. in that case, you wouldn't get into that so much. And that's it for the wide player. You know, obviously they don't need the space um, to for those big game moments or anything like that. But where they could benefit from some earlier stance or some more expansive strategies is just for their general ability to get around. <clears throat> Got it. Cool. Um, with um, as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about all right. Here's all these single leg movements. Uh, that I like, what do you think about like like um like a skater squat and a pistol squat? Like those. Obviously, you don't have the hands. So that's going to make things. Yeah, but you're actually on one leg. So I find like a lot of the time people, sorry, I cut you off. I just okay. get excited. Um, people do often demonstrate great mid stance in those setups. Got it. Yeah. Cause that's when I think of mid stance, I tend to think of that single leg, just free, free stance type, type position. Yeah. Skater squats and like uh, step ups and things like that. Like I, I just think they're phenomenal for all those mid stance qualities. Cause again, it's like a lot of it is just taking care of you're going to pronate when you're on one leg, like your knee is going to line up with your big toe. A lot of the time you are going to have to center your sternum over the knee, over the foot. Like you don't have to think about doing it. Whereas when you're just doing a regular split squat with your other leg on the ground, it's like you do have to make a concerted effort to center yourself. If you want to explore mid stance. Mm. Um, Angus, how does the, you've talked about this. Like I, I find this interesting. How does the shape of the foot, like a flat foot versus a high arch foot fit with, each of these phases of propulsion so early mid and late like is there athletes who will be better at a particular phase or transition based off their foot shape and then what how should we think about that when we're training them absolutely like i just think it's so weird um i the only people whose feet i have run into problems with are people with arches that don't move like everyone's always said oh the problem is flat feet all my best athletes have flat feet and it's not like it's just it's crazy um and maybe that's just the populations i work with a lot of different athletes though and yeah like i said all my problems are with arches that don't move so you have three phases of gait and you have two shapes of foot but then like that supinated shape it can have very different qualities depending on where the center of mass is so if your center of mass is over the toes you're going to have a supinated foot um, but it's going to be that more like propulsive supinated foot. So it's not actually going to deform and yield to the ground and like help you interact with the ground better and like set up collisions well or help you manage collisions per se. Uh, but when your center of mass is behind your base of support, obviously that whole forefoot is not going to have a bunch of load going through it. So you're going to have a nice soft supinated foot or a softer mm -hmm. supinated foot that will actually be able to comply with the ground and, and move into that mid stance. And obviously the flat foot, that's just that mid-stance foot. And obviously if you're stuck with the flat foot, you're not going to be able to get all the way back and demonstrate, let's say, a textbook beautiful early stance. But how many people truly need to get that far back? I think that's a question worth exploring on a very case-by-case -case basis. A lot of people don't need to get that far back. Hmm. Angus, as you talked about the, like the late stance with the center mass uh, in front or behind, uh, it got me thinking about um, Chong Ji's been on the show and talking about the, the athletic foot and the, what he would call the, the hyperarch mechanism. And that, when I first saw that idea of that, that foot shape, that, I mean, it blew my mind. Like I was like, whoa, like, and I think so many of us intuitively, we see that foot that's, that's so good. Like even LeBron James's foot, like it's so good at just being the stiff lever to push off of. And one of the exercises um, or the, the types of exercises, and I, I think he talked about this on the show, but like it is to help develop that foot shape 
is where you're in like a semi-squatted position, like a quarter squat. The heels are off the ground, so you're in late stance, and you're just bouncing. Like you could bounce in different directions, like diagonals. But basically, just about it's like a late stance bounce. And I feel like that yeah. that fits with that has to fit with what you're saying. Like you you develop that type of foot shape by by late stance. So you get in a late stance and just repeat exposure there. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? See, like, I just think that athletes will get enough of that stuff. And I think like maybe p- people feel like, you know, it is nice propulsive, like could be a little nice warm up and thing, like get some stiffness in those arches. Um, maybe if you're a little bit too, you know, your, your collisions are a little bit too well managed. Uh, you're not feeling propulsive enough, but I just think that I don't like what I don't like about it is it doesn't seem to fit all the high performers into the model as well. Cause like I, I want someone to be able to explain to me, like, why have I seen these flat footed people just blitz all these people who cut, who, who can form these amazing arches. And I, I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't know enough about that system to see how he reconciles those ideas. But like, I just see, I just see two clear different shapes that both in their own unique way, a crazy crazy successful and it seems to fit into that model of like you know how stiff are you how far back how many options do you have and and for me like what i like about viewing things those ways like i don't really have a problematic foot shape like you can be flat as a board or you can have a nice arch and i can fit that into a model in a strategy that is going to work for that athlete without having to be like hey i need to change what you are like these foot are, these feet don't work in my model um necessarily but yeah, I'm not 100% sure because I haven't looked into the hyperarch stuff mm. as much. Um, but then I, I know that there are some people where, like, the rear foot doesn't necessarily move that well, like, as it's peeling off the ground. So perhaps there's some things that he's looking for there that I'm not necessarily aware of. Yeah, I asked partly because I'm, I'm trying to figure out what that... So the, that hyperarch, that foot, has tendons that are, like, extensor digitorum tendons that are, tend to be prominent is probably one of the main like kind of trademarks and i always felt like that was a more of a supinated type bias to it like a locked like it helps to lock and the push off and things like that that's definitely that like springy transition but i think people <clears throat> just fetishize the spring off the ground a bit too much and like Adarian bar always talks about it it's like triple extension and that spring off the ground that's the byproduct of the push like the push happens on the ground with the flat foot and i think more people are missing that and that sets up that beautiful weight stance um for me yeah yeah how do you set up late stance i i I think yeah with that like there's obviously it's it's never just one thing it's always you have to look um it's it's helpful to look at multiple like parts of stance the late stance early and so because it's funny as well like you look at weightlifting and like everyone again what's the photo that everyone loves it's that like triple extended photo but like that's not where the power came from Mm -hmm. the power in the pool came from the second pool when you had a bent knee and when you were shoving your hips forward, yeah, it's just like, yeah. yeah. And the same as like, you know, people just want that shot of like the ball in the net, but it's like the thing that set that up, like that's where the magic was. Yeah. I think that like maybe with, with um, that late stance, like so that late stance foot and, and LeBron James's foot has those, those qualities to it. Um, like that just stiff, nice lever to push off of for sure. I'm trying to think of where I was going with this. Um, Well, and that's it. Like, I think you can get your propulsion from that flat foot being super stiff, staying that shape. Or maybe you have that thing, like you have such an arch, you just roll from that heel to that uh, forefoot, like super, super quickly. And the transition occurs in a split second. Like I could see that being beneficial in certain scenarios as well. Yeah, I I will say, I guess 
Um, I know Adarian Barge talked about getting to from a class one to a class two lever faster, like that being a trademark. And so it, it strikes me that the ability to just make that transition faster is. Well, and that's the thing. I think like, let's, if you're coming at the ground hard enough, you're going to pronate. Like you don't have to think pronate the ground hitting your foot or your foot hitting the ground, like that's going to cause the pronation. So maybe what's helping them with the speed of their transitions, like I'm just going to try to hit the ground and stay supinated and it's going to deform me, but then I'm going to transition faster if I'm just focusing on supination. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it all happens so fast. And I think it's like that type of late stance hop to me is different because it's an isometric in the sense that you're not really trying to let your ankles deform versus if, you were to jump like a ballet, I mean, not the ballet dancers can't jump, but if you jump and you try to push your toes down in the jump, you're not going to jump very high. I mean, you're, you're not going to jump as high as if you just jump and let your body take care of it. And Adarian's, I think he's said the same thing in regards to acceleration. Like if you're trying to extend, you're not letting all those little isometrics happen through like the Achilles as in, in more of those mid stance positions that will create that launch out of there. If you just yeah, like, there's a bit of time for like certain things to occur. It's not all about like completely minimizing it. Hey. Yeah, everything happens in timing. Um, so last, maybe last question. Um, I know you did some sprinting and probably with lockdown things um, had some good chance to get into that. I'd be, I'd just be curious um, how the sprint work you were doing in lockdown was, and if anything interesting came out of that, and anything that you're gonna love this. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Anything? All right, no, because like I think I'm sort of just this really shoved forward, stiff version of you. Like I'm a narrow ISA, but I just live in toe off when I'm not uh, actively exploring a lot of movement options. And I have never been a good sprinter. Like, and I feel like every time I've tried to run fast, I've just been like, "Yeah, this is me trying to run fast, but this doesn't feel like sprinting." Um, and I tried the squatted running because when I heard. I can't remember if it was you or Darren talking about it. I was like, oh, that's something that could get me on the midfoot because that's my problem. I just cannot pronate, cannot delay knee extension, cannot spend any time in mid stance. And just like, just that cute, just don't let your knees extend at all. Like really exaggerate that squat because I sort of thought sprinting, it's upright, it's extended, but it's like, I'm so shoved forward. I didn't realize like I, I'm still fairly extended when I squat down. Um, and and it actually I got that feeling of, my glutes pulling me forward because I actually got my center of mass back. Like I was still landing on the midfoot, but I was able to shin angle change and get that to sort of my knee to pull my hip forward um, rather than just like hitting the ground and trying to push off the ground and just knee extending, knee extending, knee extending and being really bouncy, but not actually propelling myself that well when I was on the ground. Like all my sort of movement was coming from the transitions previously. So for me personally, I found squatted running phenomenal. Um, because I was surprised at how slow I was because I wasn't necessarily going that quick because it is a constraint at the end of the day running that squatted but it was just allowing me to get into those sprinting shapes and just like get a sense of like okay this is what mid stance tastes like yeah if you watch so many sprint drills like there's early it's early knee extension city <laughs> in the way that it's people crazy. are taught to drill sprinting and that's like the remedy I think that Athletes who never just play their sport and have naturally good ability with their glutes and delayed knee extension probably don't. Maybe they don't. It doesn't mess do with that. them. Yeah. yeah. But but people who have been coached into a certain type of running their whole life, like like for me, that's I found that so beneficial. I remember. Yeah. 
And Darian had us do a 400 squatty run finisher at the end of one workout. My glutes were like, that was the most serious glute pump I've ever had. Like more than anything I've done in the weight room. <laughs> and that's the it thing. It's awesome. like so many people just can't demonstrate it. But all the people who can demonstrate delayed knee extension, I'm like, all right, just shove yourself forward and triple extent. And they can do both. So that's the thing. It's just like, can you show me the other one? Yeah. And I think it's that delayed knee extension. So many people are missing it. Yeah. And I think when people hear squatted running, of course, it's something that runs completely against the paradigm, right? So it's like, oh, you want me to squat down when I actually sprint like that much? It's more, to me, it's more just like everything. It's a constraint. It's a constraint that teaches you something. And so, and everyone will have their own optimal hip height when they actually run. But we tend to just teach people, yeah, this just um, early knee extension, just pure early knee extension, late propulsion rather than it's like the, yeah, the weight room, ver- it's like the track version of, of getting back. When, who doesn't love sort of exploring the corners of their yeah. technical model? It's like, okay, so a little bit of that feels good. What about a lot of it? Like if that's yeah. all part of the, the process of finding out what works for you, right? Do it until it goes bad and then pull it back. Yeah, it makes sense too. I know Adarian had talked about this was something that didn't come that intuitively for me when he was teaching me squatty runs for the first time, probably two, probably four years ago now. I don't even remember exactly, but it was maybe five, but it was a foot, like he would have me do it. I mean, it was more of a foot flat thing. Like it wasn't, the tendency I think is to treat everything as light propulsion. Like you're squatted, but still be on your toes. It's like, no, I, we, we did it flat footed, relatively speaking. Yeah. Like paint your foot across the ground and like really roll across that thing. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously once you're full speed sprinting, you're going to use less of your foot, but it's not, to me, it wasn't about that. It was just about, yeah, mid stance, glutes, delayed knee extension and once you actually start sprinting again, you can totally feel it. So that's really cool that you got that, that out of that. I like that. No, very, very enjoyable. And just like, a, like a, just for me, it was such a different experience running. Yeah, that's, I mean, running where you actually feel your glutes like kicking you forward is almost the way I describe it. Like, it's like, oh, that's what this is meant to do versus like just all the, the run tall stuff. You don't really feel a whole lot of power. And I think to pull No, yeah, it was the first thing that made me feel like a sprinter. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, yeah, I really like that work. Um, maybe I will try to throw one more question in. and just quickly uh, roll the adductors in squats, jumping, sprinting. Is that do you do any adductor work in the gym? Would you would you look to do that as a supplemental or or squat in a way that helps people to get that a little bit more? I guess just letting the knees come in probably is nice there. Um, thoughts on adductors in movement? Yes. So um, twofold. I think people there's a big group of people who just don't spend enough time specifically training their adductors, just straight up isolating them, doing isos with them, doing uh, bodybuilding work with them. But then I also think. And again, everyone thinks that I just, I love this gate stuff because it, it helps you integrate the adductors even in terms of like, we think of them as just this frontal plane powerhouse, um, but we know like they're a really powerful potential hip extensor as well. So thinking about like how you incorporate adductors naturally in your early to mid and late stance variations, like that is gonna, going from early to mid stance, you're going to change the role of the adductor there as you sort of move through stance, as you begin to move from double basic support right over to your base of support, so you're directly over it and getting a more concentric action of the adductor in mid-stance. Um, so I think I think if you focus on being able to demonstrate all three phases of gait in the weight room, um, your major work there with integrating your adductors into your sort of glutes, hamstrings, quads, et cetera, is taken care of for you. 
but I also like to spend additional time, like I said, isolating them and strengthening them. Back when I was, um, I think this was more of a like a mid twenties and 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 backwards thing than than after. And when I was more elastic, I guess you could say by nature in in some respects. When I would sprint, do hard sprint workouts, I would always get it in my adductors primarily. Um, this being primarily centered probably around my like my high jumping career and when I was playing basketball. Someone who versus a lot of other sprinters would get more like booty lock, you know, or whatever. Which I think that's because you know they get like we talked about squatty runs. Like if you're more squatted and get more a little more delayed knee extension, that would probably be a big factor there. But is there anything like someone who feels more adductor? in just like a long sprint does that say anything about that athlete that you can think of i'm I'm just curious i think a lot of the time when people sort of opened up at the front of the rib cage um whether it's like powerlifters or runners that just puts their uh adductors on a bit more of a permanent stretch and so it's just like that eccentric orientation i think it's a bit easy to cause muscular damage i'm not 100 sure on that um but like i always sense that like when i was very flared um at the ribcage anytime i did back squats or anything like that i just my adductors would be like absolutely thrashed the next day uh, and i had quite hypertrophied adductors but they're also just weak as hell like i didn't they were just sort of clinging on and being ripped apart whenever i was moving or trying to produce force and i think that's something that a lot of people experience in a variety of contexts so um when they can get it just a bit more generally like a uh retract their ribcage a little bit it just puts their adductors at a bit more useful of a length tension relationship. And they also don't get as beat up from just being like constantly on stretch. Cool. Um, yeah, it makes sense with the ribs. I, I definitely have a little bit more of that, um, anterior tilt forward flare. At least I did. I think it's gotten better, like maybe like yourself, but that makes sense to me. Um, what would you, so in terms of any sort of at like, uh, auxiliary just midline work. Yeah, adductor exercises. Um, any thoughts there on like how people could supplement if they want to train that muscle group? Um, I would say the biggest one is just do they center themselves over their stance leg well? Mm. If it, and can you sort of hip shift as well? Got it. Because a lot of people just are very very weak in those positions. And like I said, I find once you sort of expose people to those positions a little bit more and gain some competency in those positions, they just don't get as thrashed, but then they still feel like their adductors are working for them in that hip extension role. Cool. And again, centering them, pulling them over to that leg. Cool. Yeah. That, yeah, that hip shift, like I'll have to put a video in the show notes if people are looking for that. Um, that's probably the best way to describe it, but yeah, doing things that I guess you were, you're not like going out of your, I think a lot of people think adductors and think like, you know, the machines at the gym or like a side plank, Copenhagen or something. Well, not to say those are bad. I, I All those are very useful, but yeah, it's like being able to demonstrate that hip shift and incorporate your adductors into every exercise rather than just having to go out of your way to isolate them. I think that's where the gold is. Cool. Love it, Angus. Well, hey, we made it through all the questions. That actually usually doesn't happen. So I, I, I take that as a win and I uh, appreciate everything I learned from you today, man. I, I know it's late over there, so we'll let you go and we'll wrap this up, but thank you so much for coming on. And is there anything that people want to reach you, check out your stuff, anything you want to share before we close this out? Um, yeah, if you want to check me out, it's just Angus Bradley 92 on Instagram, usually posting content most days. Um, if i always have my books open for training and i believe my next round of the mentorship is kicking off or the intake will be opening up um towards the end of january or 
early February uh, if you're interested in that. And then I also have my rehab Trojan horse um, Armageddon, also known as restorative arm training. So a lot of people get made fun of um, either for training arms because apparently it's a vanity project or for doing breathing exercises and things like that. So I sort of integrated some breathing and reaching concepts into a bit of an arm routine. So for all those people who get told that training arms is a waste of time, give restorative arm training a try and it might change your opinion on arm training a bit. Um, Joel, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's always worth staying up late for these chats. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you again so much, Angus. I really appreciate it. That wraps up another show. Thanks so much for being here with us. We'll see you next week.